This is hell. Greetings, this is Hellions. Peace be upon you. This is not Chuck. He's fine, though. He's on vacation. He's getting some much-needed R&R. So I'm your substitute teacher, board operator Dan. We're going to wheel in that huge CRT television and watch a video today. That's right. I did the back-breaking work of combing through the 26 years of archival materials in the This Is Hell vaults, which are safely housed in an undisclosed location 3,000 feet below sea level. My afternoon began pleasantly. The facility's droids took my hat and coat, and I set to work selecting the perfect audio cube to play for you, the This Is Hell faithful. But as the day wore on, my alarm increased, having become absorbed in the task of finding an arresting interview. I seem to have lost myself in a Borgesian library of This Is Hell episodes from years long past. Wandering from room to room, my heartbeat quickened, the hum of the bunker's generator filled my ears, and ghosts grinned maliciously at the periphery of my vision. And it was only then, in the grip of panic and oxygen psychosis, that I stumbled upon an audio cube more perfect than any other I had encountered that day. It contained a 2005 interview Chuck conducted with the legendary late investigative journalist Robert Fisk. And that is precisely what I'm going to play for you, you all this morning, you lucky turnips. Robert Fisk was a famous Middle East correspondent. He broke the story of the Sabra and Shatila massacre in Lebanon and interviewed Osama bin Laden on three separate occasions. In 2019, I watched a documentary about Robert's 40 years of reporting entitled This Is Not a Movie, Robert Fisk and the Politics of Truth. I can recommend, without reservation, that you place a hold on the DVD copy of this tribute to Mr. Fisk's long career. It depicts the journalist risking life and limb to chase down first-hand information for important stories while other journalists reported from hotel rooms. Chuck spoke with Robert Fisk. As the Iraq war was devolving predictably into a quagmire, Robert had, at that time, just published a book, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East, which chronicles the history of Western imperialism in that region in the 20th century. The Chicago Public Library has that as well, nine copies, seven of which are currently available. But I recommend you bring a backpack when you go to pick it up because it's a bit of a doorstop at 1,100 pages. This interview is only 40 minutes long, so when it's finished, we'll continue the theme of super-famous Middle East correspondents and investigative reporters with both Irish and British citizenship reporting on American foreign policy disasters and play an interview with Patrick Cockburn from 2015, a time in which ISIS was rampaging throughout the region. But let's see how that sorry state of affairs all got started by going to this 2005 interview Chuck conducted with Robert Fisk. We turn to that interview presently. 
On the line with us right now is Robert Fisk. Robert is the author of the new book, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East. Robert is the Middle East correspondent for The Independent, and he is going to be here at Northwestern University on Monday at 7.30 p.m. at Kuhn Forum in Kellogg Hall at 2001 Sheridan Road Mm -hmm. up here in Evanston. Robert, thank you very much for being on our show this morning. You're welcome. Uh, We were actually just having a discussion whether you were actually on the show before or not, because this is what I remember, and I just want to see... If I have this accurately, uh, I remember that you and I were talking in email at one point, I believe it was, and we were going to have you on the show right around the time when you were attacked by an angry mob of uh, people in Afghanistan. And uh, I believe that in that attack, you lost your cell phone. And that was the number that I had. And I kept calling that cell phone number. And every so often, somebody would pick up and hang it up. And so I think that I was calling one of the people who assaulted you. I think you're mistaken, because number one, I don't use email, and number two, the cell phone I did not lose. Oh, okay. Um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was my contacts book I lost uh, during that attack. Uh, oddly enough, the cell phone, the passport, and the money were left intact. You know, I remember because the emails that I was, it was between some, uh, somebody at the Independent. Ah, oh, well, there you go then. Right. There you exactly, go. exactly. So I thought for some reason that, I, I, that there was some communication there. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was just talking about was... Uh, 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 breaking news story this morning. I, well, the time date stamp that I have here is 5.17 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, talking about the first busload of Palestinians passing through a newly opened terminal on the Gaza-Egypt uh, frontier this morning mm-hmm. uh, yep. at Rafah on the Gaza Strip. They quote a gentleman by the name of Ali uh, Kaman, uh, 60, told Reuters just before the first bus pulled up to the crossing, he said, today is a day of happiness for every Palestinian. The suffering is coming to an end. And I, I, I want to tell you a little story in a, in a couple minutes, but I was just, I had the great fortunate opportunity to interview kids who lived in the Dehesha uh, refugee refugee camp, right, in uh, the occupied territories. And uh, when I asked these kids, ranging from 8 to 12, 13 years old, I asked them what they thought about what was happening in Gaza. They said it's all a scam. It's all a trick. It's This means absolutely nothing. So which is it? Is it these kids' perspectives that this means nothing? Or is it, as this gentleman is quoted here saying, a day of happiness for every Palestinian because the suffering is coming to an end? Well, the um, 60-year-old is, is a fox pop for Reuters, and I'm sure he, it means it for him. Um, equally, I don't think a 13-year-old is going to be able to do a full political analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. If that seems a bit patronizing, I'm sorry. I, I think the issue is this. Um, Gaza is a dustbin. It's a dustbin for the Palestinians, and it became a dustbin and a hopeless expensive one for the Israelis. And by withdrawing, what, a mere 8,000 settlers, and we're talking of a quarter of a million in other terms, uh, from Gaza, it was a relief to the Israeli army. It was a relief to the government. It was a relief to the Ministry of Finance um, in, in Israel. Um, it was probably also in a way of uh, showing the world that Israel could make withdrawals without making any significant withdrawals on the West Bank, which is where it really matters. If there's going to be a Palestinian state or a viable Palestinian state as our own Dear Prime Minister, Mr. Blair keeps telling us in Britain, um, then the West Bank has got to have some form of territorial continuity, which it doesn't have, with the massive and in many cases increasing size of Jewish settlements for Jews and Jews only on Arab land, the vast settlements like Mali Adumim, which in fact President George W. Bush has already in effect said are going to stay there, whatever happens, and the large number of settler roads which cut 
the uh, slice up like a banana, the 22% of Palestine that's left, minus the 16.2% of the 22% that's gone with the building of the wall, the anti-suicide bomber wall, and it is a wall, not a fence, um, outside Jerusalem. So, in effect, I think that whatever happens in Gaza is going to have minimal effect on whether or not the Palestinians are going to have a state on the West Bank, and at the moment, it doesn't look as if they're going to. Uh, in this conversation that I was having with these kids from the refugee camp, mm. uh, a conversation that I uh, had set up through uh, a wonderful woman named uh, Barbara Lubin from the Middle East uh, Children's Alliance. Yes, uh, I know her, yeah. Yeah, in- incredible woman, and I, I, I really appreciate this opportunity to actually talk to her, talk to these kids about it, because it's interesting to hear a kid's perspective. But one of the things that I was really struck by in hearing these children's perspectives, and I know that you don't, you were just saying that you don't think they can get a full analysis, but at the same time... Well, they're getting it from their parents, what they're telling right. you, obviously, and, and their parents' views matter a lot. Uh, so I'm not dismissing what they say, right. but I don't think a 12-year-old is going to pop up to you having read 15 books and followed the papers for the last two years. Right. But, but uh, to be same, honest. In, in, in a sense, though, I think that they're, in, like you said, that's a really good point, that what they are doing is reflecting their uh, parents' opinions. And their and, family's opinion, yeah. It, it, right. And I think that uh, kids around the world, the one thing that they are is a sponge for information. Here in the United States, that might make them materialist and shallow and consumerist, but they're a sponge for information of the things that directly impact their lives. Unfortunately, here in the United States, that's whether to wear a SpongeBob shirt to school or whatever the case is. But it seems like over there, they're, they're also a sponge themselves. They take in a ton of information from their parents, the things that directly affect their lives, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and how that directly affects their lives. And the thing that I was surprised about when I was talking to these kids was the diversity of opinions, how some kids believed that there should be a right of return. Obviously, like you're saying, that this reflects their parents. Uh, how some kids believe that their, their importance was a state, how some kids wanted to have reconciliation, how other kids wanted to have uh, the number of uh, Israelis drop down to the number of Israelis that were there in 1948 uh, before the beginning of the uh, Israeli state. Uh, but in this, while I was talking to these kids, it made me realize that, uh, in, I knew this already, but I, I, I think that Americans have this impression of people in the Middle East that they are single-minded. Whether they're Israelis, if they're Israelis, they're all anti-Arab and they want to fight Palestinians. If they're Palestinians, they all want to see the end of the uh, Jewish state. If they're Iranians, they uh, have another impression that, that every group of people are single-minded. That's the impression, I think, that Americans get through the media here in the United States. How would you describe, being somebody who has been in the Middle East, how would you describe the complexity and the awareness that people in the Middle East have of their own situation? Because I think there's this really condescending view here in the United States that they don't know what to do with their future, and we know how to help them towards democracy. Well, I don't think we, um, as governments, actually want them to have democracy. We always said of Arafat, can he control his own people, not can he represent his own Mm -hmm. people. Um, But we as people, I think, as human beings, probably do care. Um, I think there's, in one way, you know, we keep talking about the complexity of the situation. That's a way of switching off all discussion. It's so complex, only the people there can understand it. Right. And thus, only the Israelis and Palestinians can understand it. And the Israelis who have an infinitely bigger uh, audience in the United States will thus say that only they can understand it. Um, I think that, you know, uh, opinions change depending on events. And they're very fickle, as opinions are in the West as well. Um, At the time of Oslo, there was a great deal of hope, founded, I think, on sand, because if you actually read the Oslo Agreement, uh, the the postponing of of the final status talks of all the most important issues, right of return, Jerusalem settlements, and so on, it was never going to work. It was going to be subject to constant delays in withdrawal timetables, which it was on every withdrawal, um, and would eventually fail because at final status talks, Arafat will be presented with 
very little of what he could have, of what he wanted. In other words, about 68% of the Palestinian West Bank, as opposed to the 94, which the Israelis claim they were offering. And so it founded. Um, and I think you see that those people who supported at the time of the Oslo Agreement back in 93, the idea that there would be two states living side by side in happiness and security together, uh, many of those people have reverted through frustration and anger, either on the Israeli side to saying, well, let them fester in the West Bank under occupation if that's what they want, or on the Palestinian side, we'll not settle for anything less than mandate Palestine. In other words, all of Palestine before the state of Israel existed. So we've seen a considerable regression among over the years since 93, we're now talking after all 12 years ago, the Arafat Rabin handshake on the White House lawn, we've seen a considerable regression of popular opinion on both sides uh, back towards original beliefs that existed prior to Oslo in the days when Arafat was a super terrorist before he became a super statesman. Later on, of course, he became a super terrorist again because we were able to use this magical wheel of fortune on most Middle East leaders. Um, so, I mean, I think today, you know, if in fact we really could go back to the foundation of all the peace agreements or what was meant to be the foundation, which was UN Security Council Resolution 242, withdrawal of Israeli forces from territory occupied in the 67 war in return for the security of all states in the area, including, of course, Israel, and the insistence in the same UN Resolution 242 that it is illegal to acquire land through war. In other words, the Israelis can't turn around and say, well, we'll give some of the territory back, but not all of it, which in effect is what has happened. Equally, it does require the Palestinians to accept the state of Israel, all of them, not just those bits that sign agreements and sign treaties. So, um, you know, if we can move back towards 242, which we don't seem to be doing, maybe there's a hope. But in itself, Gaza doesn't really uh, amount to much of a hill of beans when it comes to state creation. It does obviously give enormous relief, the withdrawal of the uh, Israeli settlements, and most of all, I think, this opening into Egypt. It gives the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip a continuity with the rest of the Arab world that they've been cut off from since 1967. And that is undoubtedly of great importance. We're speaking with Robert Fisk. Robert's going to be here at Northwestern University's campus in Evanston on Monday at 7.30 p.m. in Northwestern University's O.L. Kuhn Forum. That's in the Kellogg School at 2001 Sheridan Road. Uh, you've condemned what you call hotel journalism. <laughs> yet, yet, uh, what we've uh, when we've uh, spoken with another unembedded journalist like yourself, uh, Dar Jamal, on reporting in Iraq, he has said that he understands. He, that's, I don't think he mean. I don't think he means that he condones, but he understands why journalists stay behind barricaded walls or in secure military. So do I. So do I. I agree. I, I agree too. Now, my concern is not that journalists stand behind or work behind barricaded walls. Um, I don't even object particularly if the New York Times does what it does and lives behind a steel and concrete stockade on the side of the Tigris River with four watchtowers and armed Iraqis with New York Times T-shirts, which is also the case. No, um, you know, the, the, let's not be romantic about the insurgency or the death squads of Baghdad uh, or indeed the suicide bombers who have twice now tried to kill journalists, first at the Palestine Hotel and then the Hamra Hotel in the Karada district of Baghdad. What I object to is the journalists who work from their hotel rooms and don't leave their hotels and use their mobile phones to call the American embassy, the British embassy, or Iraqi officials in the so-called Green Zone, the former presidential palace area of Saddam, which is now a barricaded fortress uh, beside the River Tigris. Um, but don't tell their readers, their viewers, oh. and their listeners that they are not leaving their hotel room, thus giving the impression when they report that, for example, Americans kill eight insurgents in North Baghdad, that they've been able to go out on the 
in Baghdad as a street reporter and check the story out and see if it's actually correct or whether any civilians died as well, which almost invariably does happen when operations of this kind take place. So by not saying or not talking about the restrictions on their own movements, they give the impression of giving credibility to the authorities, which the authorities don't necessarily deserve, and which the journalists have a duty, which they can't carry out, to check up on. And it's this silence that I object to. I mean, when Saddam was in power, very often, and sometimes unnecessarily because it wasn't actually the case, uh, television and radio stations would say uh, this report by our correspondent in Baghdad is being monitored by the Iraqi authorities. Uh, I got sick and tired during the war of telling radio stations it wasn't. I was on my mobile phone and no one was listening to it. But uh, nonetheless, it was a health warning. But now when the restrictions on journalists are even greater, there is no health warning. And we're left with the idea, if we don't know much about the reporting area or much about Iraq, that the journalist reporting with a Baghdad dateline is free to move around when in fact he's not. That's my objection. Not because... People like Patrick Coburn of The Independent and The Financial Times, and until he was kidnapped recently and mercifully released shortly afterwards, The Guardian, and to some extent myself as well, do still move around in Baghdad. I mean, we put a Baghdad date on them, but at least we go out. Um, but I don't object to the hotel journalists. What I do object to is that they don't tell us that they're only working out of their hotel room, because frankly... If you're going to use a mobile phone from a Baghdad hotel room to call the British or American embassies in Baghdad, you might as well uh, call from Chicago on a mobile phone and talk to the British and American embassies, and you're not going to learn any more or any less, are you? Right. You know, uh, one of the things that when I was talking with Dar Jamal, he said that the reason that he's able to uh, get around and move around within the within country in uh, Iraq is because he is of Arab descent and he has an Arabic uh, appearance. Though he well, a lot of journalists on the major news agencies, for example, are now employing their Arab staffs from, say, Egypt and Lebanon to do the footwork for them. Um, certainly, I mean, I travel with two Iraqi friends, but I go with them. Right. Uh, they're in danger anyway if they work for our newspaper, simply because they're working for a Western news organization, which is seen by the insurgents, unfortunately, as part of the occupying apparatus, the apparatus of the occupying power. Um, so, you know, there is, to some extent, an ability to use um, Iraqi journalists, in many cases, journalists who worked under the previous regime. But, you know, they, they, we, we, you, can't, you can't therefore assume that everyone who worked under the Ba'ath Party is dishonest. Um, but this does place a heavy burden of responsibility on journalists in Iraq who, in many cases, don't have the training and background that we have and who, in many cases, don't get the byline. The byline goes to the Westerner sitting in his hotel room, whereas at the bottom of the story in italics it says... Uh, uh, work or, or, or additional reporting on this story was also done by, you know, Mohammed, whoever. Right. And, and in this sense, um, there's a kind of downgrading of the enormous and in many cases extremely courageous work of Iraqis who go out to do the reporting for the Western newspapers and news agencies. But un- unlike uh, Dar, you are you're white, though you speak you speak Arabic, and you do get around. You are saying that you go out, and I mean, you've said recently that it's becoming more and more dangerous, and you don't know how long you can continue doing mm-hmm. this. Uh, but uh, why is it that someone like yourself can get around and do this, and other white journalists don't? Is it because well, I don't like the word white uh, and, I know, all but... the time? There, there are those who those who claim that you can't tell my uh, I have I, I wear such a big coat you can't tell the color. Um, no, look, I think the point is this. I'm trying to um, find out if it's laziness or if it's you know. Oh, it's some t- look. I've lived in the Middle East for almost 30 years now. Um, there's no point in me trying to cover up. And uh, people who hear me speak my flawed Arabic, it's not fluent, but it's pretty right. good, uh, in Iraq can tell immediately I don't come from Iraq because I speak uh, with a Lebanese accent. I use Lebanese words. 
you know, I mean, um, Dogari is what I'd say for straight ahead in Lebanon. Gobal, Gobal is what I'd say in Iraq. And I don't know all the Iraqi alternative words to what I learned in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So uh, people can quickly work out when I talk to them that I'm definitely not Iraqi. They can see I've got blue eyes, et cetera, et cetera, yes. Um, well, look, I've had the experience of the Algerian war where it, very similar, throat cutting of all foreigners, killing of journalists, etc., Islamists versus government, uh, government forces in, uh, infiltrated by the insurgents. It was a very similar situation. I realize that writing this book, because there's a whole bloody, terrifying, torturing chapter in my book on, on the Algerian war. I mean, right. not just the war of independence against France, but the, the later one, which we're more familiar with now. And... Um, I learned there, for example, that you have X number of minutes if you go to a particular location and you should never call first and say you're coming before someone outside with a phone has the opportunity to call up a, a, you know, a carload of gunmen to pick you up. Um, so what I do is I, I go off with my two Iraqi friends and we go to a location where I'm interested in going to to do an interview. I'll go straight into the shop or building. I time my watch 20 minutes, do the interview I want, get out, jump in the car, race away. Mouse journalism, I call this. Same applies if you go, for example, to um, you know, a scene of a suicide bombing. You get there, you jump out of the car, you have 20 seconds of eyewitness reports and clear out quick. Um, you can do it. And in this way, at least you get a fragment of reality, which is you're not going to get in your hotel room you know, with your BBC television on, mm-hmm. or your Fox News, or your CNN, and your, your telephone. That's not going to work. Um, the other day, for example, I mean, I still go out to lunch in Baghdad with great care. Uh, and the only people having lunch are Iraqis. So I'm able to talk to the people sitting next to me at lunch and to the waiters. I went out the other day to my favorite restaurant, the Ramaya, big red neon sign, fine Lebanese red wine international menu. Only it had changed. It was now a green neon sign. It had an Islamic name to the restaurant. Uh, the menu was only in Arabic, and there definitely wasn't any more red Lebanese wine. Now, I wrote a six, 700-word story about the... The, the, the comedian-like change in my favorite restaurant. It had become Islamicized, and this is part of ordinary life in Baghdad that you're not going to learn about or be able to write about if you sit in a hotel room. So it's worth doing it, but you have to do it fast. You have to watch the clock. You have to have some luck, and you have to probably be a bit crazy like me. Uh, you said in uh, the situation in Iraq has got so bad, uh, you uh, might not be able to uh, report from there. Well, I'll go back again in December or January, but I, I'm, I'm increasingly coming to the view that the risk is not worth the story, or the story is not worth the risk, whichever way around you like. And I've never felt this on an assignment before in the Middle East in 30 years. It is you know, one of the most enormously important stories in journalistic terms I've ever covered. But when you go to a place at enormous risk and can't do your job properly, you have to ask yourself whether you can't come into this at some different angle, whether there aren't people you need to talk to around Iraq as well as in Iraq. But at the same time, you see, there's no way I can justify that argument when I take into account the fact that I made several visits to the city mortuary in August, counting bodies at nine in the morning, nine corpses, at 12 in the morning, 26 corpses, one a woman with her hand ties back hands tied behind her back, three bullets in her brain, and baby shot in the face. And when I can get access, as I did, through the mortuary officials, who know me well in all the hospitals in Baghdad, to the computer, which has the hidden and secret figures for Baghdad dead each month, which British and American officials have told the Ministry of Health they must not give out to journalists. And I discovered on the computer, and this is the official secret figure, but accurate, that in July alone, in just Baghdad, in just July, 1,100 Iraqis died by violence. Now, you put that across the country, 
I mean, Mosul, Kirkuk, Bakuba, Amara, uh, Fallujah, Ramadi, Najaf, Kabbalah, Basra, etc. You must be talking of three to 4,000 Iraqis dying each month by violence. That's 36 to 48,000 a year, which means that that 100,000 extrapolated figure, which Bush and Blair poo-pooed, may actually turn out to be rather conservative. Now, you couldn't do that sitting in a hotel room, and you can't do that sitting in Beirut or Chicago. So to that extent, it's still worth going. But had my investigations into the mortuary figures ended up not as it did with a front-page story fringed in black on the front of my newspaper, The Independent of London, but in me appearing on a videotape with blindfolded, pleading with Mr. Blair to withdraw all British troops by Friday, it wouldn't have been considered worth the risk, would it? Right. Uh, that's the problem we face. I mean, that's the practical problem, I say frankly to you. Yeah, you, you said that uh, this is a war the like of which I have never reported before. Over and over again, we are escaping with our lives because we are lucky, and it is getting much better, not worse. And like you were saying, you're, you're concerned about— Getting the, much worse, not better, you mean. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm a little dyslexic there for a second. I apologize. Uh, what, the thing that I was— you, I mean, you've been in so many horrible situations. You've des- you describe uh, situations that you've seen during the Iran-Iraq war. Like you were talking about the uh, <clears throat> war between the Algerian government and the Islamists. You were there, too. You were uh, being shot at by American uh, troops during while you were running with the Taliban. You were covering the Afghan war. I mean, you've been in a lot of horrible situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes this worse in Iraq? Is it the unpredictability because of the insurgency and, uh, saturated within the regular populace? Well, I think that, I mean, that, that, that was the case, of course, in Algeria, and it's been the case in Lebanon. I mean, that, that's always the case. The insurgents okay. come from the populace okay. by their very nature. That's why they're impossible to defeat, usually. Um, no, I think the problem is in, in, in um, Iraq that we have reached the nadir, if you like, of any respect for journalists. Now, whether this is because the people, are so, the people we're dealing with are so ferocious, they simply don't care, or whether it's because they're not impressed by our work, <laughs> or whether it's because they don't have the opportunity to tell the difference between a white mercenary and a white journalist, especially when journalists, in many cases the hotel journalists, when they travel to the green zone, are accompanied by an SUV full of heavily armed, and very ostentatiously armed men, thus, of course, making journalism and weapons somehow synonymous. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe it's a, you know, a bit of all of them in varying degrees. Um, but there is absolutely no respect held among any of the armed groups, or I suspect the government, towards journalists in Iraq. You know, even in Algeria, one might appeal, not very successfully, on the basis of one's journalistic credentials. Um, But I think that in Iraq, there is simply no interest in saying a reporter is different. Now, we've seen reporters have been kidnapped and been released, either because their national governments have, have gone to great lengths to plead with the, the kidnappers, or there have been intermediaries who may or may not have been paid. But we also know that journalists have been gunned down and shot, even though the government know they're journalists. Uh, one of Poland's top correspondents in a traffic jam in a village was simply gunned down along with his cameraman in front of his car, which clearly said, Sahafa Press, they knew he was a journalist. An Italian a journalist was executed on video, shot in the face as he struggled with his captors. Um, you know, when you have this situation, you're not really in a position to say, hold on a second, if you're captured. I did write a a very fair article about torture of prisoners two weeks ago. It's not going to have any effect. So I think that, you know, what you've got, I mean, at least in Algeria, we had contacts with the insurgents. I could meet insurgents and talk to them in certain locations. Uh, I have met three leaders of the insurgency in Iraq, in another country, in Jordan, in fact. 
uh, including the man who defended Fallujah in November, a very senior officer in the Iraqi army, all the, you know, the, 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 who were all fired by uh, the United States in 2003, but they've kept their ranks, and indeed they've also kept their men. It's the Iraqi army of the Iran-Iraq War, 80 to 88, who are effectively fighting the Americans with the, you know, the Walmart suiciders of al-Qaeda globbed onto the side of this campaign. Um, and it's they, by the way, who will have to deal with al-Qaeda when the West leaves Iraq. We can't do it. We're not winning the war against al-Qaeda there at all. Um, the Iraqis possibly could or must, must do if they want to have the freedom of their country after a Western withdrawal. But these people openly admitted to me, and they were very friendly. We had cups of tea and we were chatting. One of them spoke quite good English. I think he'd been trained in America. Uh, you know, a lot of the Iraqi army officers who are behind the insurgency know the West very well. One or two of them, you know, have been trained in France as fighter bomber pilots uh, for Mirages and the Iraqi Air Force at the time of Saddam. They were quite frank that they've taken the decision that civilians will die, that uh, if they have to attack mercenaries in a hotel where journalists are staying, the journalists may well die as well. That is of no great interest. Their view is that we keep talking about our bombing raids in which we weep crocodile tears over collateral damage, as we obscenely call it, i.e. civilians we know will die, but who are bound to die because we're trying to kill other people. Um, and they say, well, we do the same. We know we're going to kill women and children when we make attacks on police stations, but their attacks are on the police stations, and, and we take the same view as your armies do. Now, you can argue backwards and forwards that you know these are wicked, evil people, and we're not the same as them, and so on and so forth. Um, but that is what they say. And clearly a decision has been taken by various elements of the insurgency that they're not particularly concerned when a suicide bomber is sent off against uh, a military base, whether he kills innocent people or not. And I know Iraqis who've been killed by suicide bombers. I know Iraqis who've just escaped but whose friends have been killed by suicide bombers. And it continues. There has been no let-up. Um, and despite this odd message from Zarqawi, supposedly al-Qaeda's man in Iraq, if, he's, if he exists now, I don't know, <coughs> um, to the extent that he was, you know, he didn't mean to hit the wedding party when the bombs went off in Jordan, which may or may not be true. Um, you know, I don't think there's much compunction on the part of the armed elements, to use that horrible, you know, amorphous phrase, about the killing of civilians. And then the same applies to journalists. Our lives simply aren't worth a penny or a dime. And uh, for, that, you know, for that reason, it is an extremely dangerous, difficult story to cover. Um, you know, one sympathizes with those who suffer, who are principally Iraqis, but they can't offer us protection in return. You know, I think that one of the things that the uh, you would know more than I would, but I think one of the things that, that your readers, your audience, uh, enjoys the most about your work is that you are unembedded, that you are giving a perspective that other people can, are not giving uh, in the journalistic world. When we had Dar Jamal on the show, as I was saying before, another un, unembedded writer, I asked him, what do you think is the most underreported or unreported story in Iraq? Now, the this suffering was, of Iraqis. You know, back in June, he said that he thought it was the uh, crime wave. Well, yes. Um, I mean, the thing is, you see, there's, there's these Im invisible lines between the insurgents, mafia, banditry, tribal banditry, mafia-type crime in the big cities, particularly Baghdad, kidnapping for money, kidnapping for money, and politics. They, inter they, they, they merge into each other. And <clears throat> because, you know, from the very start, the Americans decided that they would do nothing to impose law and order. They weren't interested in law and order. They were interested in capturing the interior ministry and the oil ministry and the rest could go up and smoke, which they did. 
they did go up in smoke, the other ministries, and the museums, and the archives, and the whole cultural identity of Iraq went up in smoke in 2003, April. Um, and because of that, you know, a whole culture of banditry and violence set in, as it does in all cities where there is no law and order. I mean, it happened in Beirut quite often during the Civil War, certainly happened in large areas of Algeria, um, in, in most uh, areas where the central government is effectively erased from power and where um, the elements in society which most want to destroy, rob and loot are let free, uh, including many people who, of course, Saddam let free from prison prior to <coughs> his overthrow, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, you will have this phenomenon. And, yeah, the crime wave, but, you know, it is the unreported phenomenon, but so is the suffering of Iraqis. Um, all countries have crime waves, and all insurgencies are usually um, involved with the mafia. So are most governments. I'm sure the Iraqi government is also involved with death squads. Um, it's all become so intermingled that even if you could move freely through the streets of Baghdad and live anywhere you wanted in Iraq, you'd still find layer upon layer of crime, murder, political crime, assassination, which would all merge with each other. And that's what happens. It's not a clean-cut agency-type story. Robert, uh, we're talking with Robert Fisk. He is the author of the new book, uh, a really incredible book, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East. Uh, We have a direct link at our website for you to purchase this through Alfred A. Knopf, and I would suggest that you purchase it through your independent book dealer and wherever you are. Robert is the Middle East correspondent for The Independent. He's going to be up here in Evanston at Northwestern University's uh, O.L. Kuhn Forum in the Kellogg School at 2001 Sheridan Road on Monday at 7.30 p.m. Uh, Robert, our producer has a question for you. Then I've got one more question for you and we can wrap it up. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Bob, well, first of all, it's an honor to meet, uh, I think you're the only journalist I know who has a fatwa on him by John Malkovich. So it's, it's an honor to... Yeah, but uh, like all actors, John Malkovich uh, confuses fiction and reality, so I wouldn't worry too much about his fatwa. Yeah, no, I, obviously, I don't think you are and you're doing it. Uh, I haven't stopped you at all. Um, you know, the, I think the, the left in the United States... Um, in, when they're presenting various scenarios, because now it looks like we're in this, some sort of end game in the next two years of uh, some part of the occupation leaving uh, on all sides, it seems like this is the consensus. But the left, when they portray scenarios after uh, the U.S. leaves, either you hear, which you hear a lot, that it's chaos already, so we just leave and there will still be chaos. I think I just heard Michael Moore say that again a couple of days ago. And then uh, on the other, there's a perspective of Jim McDermott, a representative. Jim McDermott says on the House floor that there's an Arab culture. He sort of this culturalist argument. as an Arab culture that with have honor and tribal links, and they'll be able to patch up the situation much better than uh, if, if we leave. Look, I think it's simpler than this. Right. There never has been a civil war in Iraq. It's not a sectarian society. It is a tribal society. There is intermarriage. I went to the funeral of a Sunni doctor months ago who had been shot dead, I'm sure, by a Shiite gunman because it objected to the building of a new Shiite mosque at the end of his street. At the funeral feast on the floor of his home afterwards, I sat next to the doctor's Sunni Muslim brother, asked him if there was going to be a civil war, and his reply was very simple. Why do you Westerners want us to have a civil war? He said, I'm married to a Shiite. Do you want me to kill my wife? You know, this is an authentic Iraqi voice. Um, There's no doubt that the violence will continue and grow worse as long as Western forces continue in occupation. Therefore, if they're no longer in occupation, we cannot surely have more than 1,100 violent deaths a month in Baghdad. Now, if someone wants a civil war in Iraq, the, the bombs that are being placed in Shiite mosques, Shiite marketplaces, Shiite bus stations are clearly an attempt to create a sectarian war, which we journalists actually talk about much more than the Iraqis do. 
Um, there are Iraqis in the hundreds of thousands fleeing their country for the safety of Jordan. Not that that's that safe at the moment. Um, there are Shiites and Sunnis moving out of their homes to safer areas, which is a sure sign of an incipient civil conflict. But I still believe that Iraqis, um, you know, it's a Muslim land. Um, the, the Kurds will be very worried when the Americans leave because they'll be frightened, probably with good reason, that the Turkish army will come back to rule them in the north of Iraq. But I don't think that we're going to see Sunnis and Shiites killing each other in Iraq in the aftermath of a withdrawal. I think we will see some kind of coalition of Iranian elements within the present government, association of ulama, the various um, Muslim uh, religious leaders who have an institution in which they talk to each other in Baghdad, and leaders of the Iraqi insurgency come together. They will have to deal with the al-Qaeda elements, which we've already seen in um, uh, in action, in, in most bloody and suicidal action in, in the various cities of Iraq. Uh, Robert, one last question for you. Yeah. We've been speaking with Robert Fisk, author of The Just Release, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East. Robert is the Middle East correspondent for The Independent, and again, he will be here in Evanston at Northwestern University's Kuhn Forum in the Kellogg School at 2001 Sheridan Road on Monday at 7.30 p.m. At one point in your book, and I, I don't have that, the part open to me right now, but there's a discussion of uh, what you believe a, a journalist's role is. I believe you say that it's something about the first witness to history. Yes, and, I, and the, I, I say in this, uh, you know, I, I, I have a discussion with Amira Haas, a right. very fine Israeli journalist who works for Haaretz and who writes more eloquently, frankly, than any, and more bravely than any Western journalist about the Middle East. Right. Um, she said to me, I, I did my piece saying, look, you know, our job is to record the first pages of history so right. no one can say we didn't know, no one told us. Right. And she said, no, Robert, you're wrong. That's our job, but it's not our primary job. Our primary job is to monitor the centers of power, to challenge authority, especially when it goes to war, especially when it's going to kill people, and especially when it uses lies. Okay, but in that challenging of authority, which I... I mean, I completely agree with what mm. Amira Haas said there. Not that that makes any difference, but I completely agree. But in a uh, review of your book that appeared in The Economist, and it was not a very glowing review, it said it, – actually, it was. It, it said some really great things about your book, but then it also had – Among the things it said good about my book, it praised my description of Israeli forces entering Beirut in 82, which was very flattering, except that the description referred to was from actually a book I wrote 15 years ago, <laughs> Pity the Nation. Right. So, but no, no, so it's always good to find that reviewers remember the previous book they've reviewed, even <laughs> if they haven't probably reviewed the new one. It, but that, carry on, yes, it, go ahead. It had that much of an impact on them. But in this review, it said <laughs> – even if you are turned off by Fisk's uh, self-righteous identification, which uh, uh, those uh, he deems, uh, I'm sorry, with those he deems history's victims and his habits of, and this habit's uh, subtle corollary of making himself the hero of every, every story, Fisk still repays reading. And it seems like what the Economist reviewer is saying is that they are upset with, the, with possibly your uh, lack, or what they might see as your lack of objectivity, or your opinion getting into your story. Do you think that your opinion's uh, impact on your story uh, undermines the reportage to make sure that other people, not just people on the left, would be reading your work? Look, uh, my readers are not leftists, and I'm surprised you keep referring to the left, and I'm certainly not a leftist. Um, I believe that journalists are the nerve endings of the newspaper. I believe that when I hear American journalists telling me what's going on over lunch and they get it right, it is tragic that when I open their stories next morning, all elements of what they know is going on have been deleted, and the only opinion turns out to be what someone in the uh, Brookings Institute might say. Um, this, this is a major problem. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that journalists have an absolute duty to say, look, we have 
we know what's going on. We have an idea of what's happening here. We have opinions and feelings. Mm-hmm. This is it. We're not, once we start deleting what the other people say, once we start saying, oh, we're not going to give any idea of why people are opposing X or Y or Z, then, of course, we're, we're hopeless in our job and we can't carry on. I'm not going to risk my life to write that kind of journalism. But it's time that we journalists were allowed to say, look, an injustice is going on here, and here are the victims, and we've got to interview them. Um, if we're entering a concentration camp in Nazi Germany as a journalist at the end of World War II, we don't give equal time to the SS spokesman. And I think we need to apply certain moral standards to our work over and above acting like an agency journalist and, and, and trotting out all sides to an argument and coming out with a glib comment at the end. That may, may be what The Economist would like, but I find The Economist as a, as a news magazine as dull as ditch water. And, um, well, ask your uh, readers or your listeners what they think of it. Right. Well, Robert, uh, it's really an honor to have you on the show this morning, and I hope that uh, tons of people from our audience come and see you this Monday. This is an amazing book, and uh, I know that you don't uh, give very many interviews, but I I might be bothering you in the very near future to have you back on to discuss more about this book. This really is an amazing work. Thank you very much, Robert, and have a great weekend. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is how, boy, he got off that phone fast. Holy cow. Unhappy about that last question, I think. That was our hero, Chuck, currently on vacation, speaking to the late, legendary investigative reporter Robert Fisk in 2005. And this is board operator Dan Hill speaking to you in 2022. That was a remarkable interview. Things were bad in Iraq in 2005. But as our next interview demonstrates, they would not get any better in the subsequent decade, a bloody war of unprovoked American military aggression in Iraq destabilized the region and provided an incubator for insurgents when an Arab Spring-style revolt devolved into a civil war in Syria. Many of these insurgents formed the base of ISIS, which began a military campaign during the Syrian civil war, which resulted in the capture of territory. By the end of 2015, that contained an estimated 8 to 12 million people and stretched from western Iraq to eastern Syria. Chuck spoke with investigative journalist Patrick Coburn in March of that year. Patrick had been doing on-the-ground reporting in the region at that time and speaks to Chuck about the complicated political situation. So let's go to that interview presently. This is hell. The war in what used to be Syria and Iraq is far more complicated than you thought. And I'm betting you're already pretty confused by the whole damn thing. It used to be so easy when the enemy of my enemy was my friend, but now friends can be enemies too. Welcome to the new world since the Islamic State arrived and here to tell us about it. Patrick Coburn is correspondent for the independent newspaper in the UK and author of the new book, The Rise of the Islamic State. Uh, ISIS and the new Sunni revolution. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Good evening, and where are we contacting you today, sir? I'm in Canterbury in England. Okay, in Canterbury in England. Patrick was awarded Foreign Commentator of the Year at the 2013 Editorial Intelligence Comment Awards. It's always great to have you on the show, Patrick. This week, ISIS held to Crete fell to Iraqi troops and militias, or at least that's how it was reported by Reuters. The Telegraph had it as Iraqi and Shiite forces, while prior to to Crete uh, falling, 
McClatchy had Iraqi security forces and Iranian-backed Shiite Muslims uh, militias on Tuesday pushed to the outskirts of the encircled city of Tikrit. This is the same Tikrit that fell without a fight on June 11th of last year when the Iraqi military fled. Uh, we've touched on this in the past with you, but it's important for our audience and myself to remember because this is key to the way in which the story and history of the Iraq war is being told here in the U.S. Here we're told the Iraqi military simply ran away in the face of ISIS. Why did the Iraqi military flee so quickly when ISIS took to Crete back in June of 2013? And what did U.S. policy related to the military or its structure have to do with the Iraqi military fleeing? Yeah, I mean, the, it was an amazing defeat when last year there were meant to be um, a 350,000 uh, soldiers in the Iraqi army. And they were defeated by a few thousand uh, guys from uh, the from ISIS. Uh, they fought for a few days in the Mosul, not very effectively, and then they uh, at Tikrit they just fled. Uh, commanders fled, and ISIS massacred about 800 young cadets, uh, Shia cadets there. Um, so. Uh, What's different this time round? Well, it's mainly it's the Shia militias that are leading the attack. There are about 20,000 of them. There are only about 3,000 people from the Iraqi security forces, including the army. And uh, this is very serious because it shows that the Iraqi army still hasn't been stood up. Uh, it's the Iranian-backed uh, militias that are doing the real fighting. And if there's no Iraqi army... Uh, including Sunni as well as Shia, then there's no real Iraq as a single country. Does the Iraqi army then still have the exact same structural uh, problems, and does the, is the U.S. policy towards the Iraqi military the same way as it was in the past that led to an Iraqi military fleeing when uh, they were faced with uh, ISIS? Well, it's difficult to reform an army where all the officers have bought their job. Um, they bought their jobs because you could make money out of them. Um, you know, you want to be a colonel, it cost you about $200,000 in the past, and you'd make money. This is why the army was defeated so fast. By, let's say, you're meant to have 600 men in your battalion, but you really only have 200. But you're getting money to feed 600, to equip 600, to uh, ammunition for 600. Uh, but, in fact, you're embezzling that. You have to kick back some of that... Uh, the other officers and to your general, but you can still make an awful lot of money very fast. There are lots of other ways of making money uh, as well, uh, checkpoints, any truck that goes past, you charge um, uh, them a tariff, uh, like a customs barrier. Um, so basically, you know, one Iraqi politician said to me, you know, these officers in the army, they're, they're not soldiers, they're investors, which is why they ran away so fast last year. And it may have changed a little, but not much. So you write that less attention is given as uh, to why the military forces of the Kurdistan regional government, that's the KRG, supposedly uh, far tougher and better uh, commanded, fled from the ISIS attack in August even faster than the Iraqi army in June. And this is related to the attack on Mosul. Uh, did this also have to do with some structural problem, or is the Kurdish military flight completely different with the from the uh, well, Iraqi military? Well, it was always meant to be. You know, the Kurd, Kurdistan and the Kurds, have always sold themselves as the other Iraq, the Iraq that works, uh, that is efficient. Actually, it's a bit better than Baghdad, but uh, you have to compare it 
with Baghdad for the Kurds to come out ahead, compare them with any other part of the world. You know, and it's, uh, it's very corrupt. It's pretty dysfunctional. The Peshmerga were full of uh, people who had appointed because they were somebody's cousin or uh, they hadn't been to work for months. They just took their salaries. So they fled very fast. It was a pretty shameful defeat, but they didn't tell. I've talked to the villagers in areas they were meant to be guarding, these poor Yazidis, uh, who ISIS, the Islamic State, regards as pagans, whom they can uh, enslave or rape or murder. And the Peshmerga, the Iraqi uh, Kurdish forces, just abandoned them, didn't even tell them that they were leaving their villages. So a lot of them were captured by ISIS when they, if they'd had a little bit of warning, they could have got away. You make another point that's a very misunderstood here in the U.S. Uh, quote, before the self-proclaimed Islamic State, also known as ISIS, captured Tikrit in on June 11th of last year, the city had a population of about 260,000, almost all of them Sunni. The offensive to drive out ISIS that is now underway is very much a Shia affair with 30,000 soldiers, half from the regular army and half Shia militias. Significantly, it is taking place with the support of Iran and without the backing of U.S. airstrikes. Iran and the U.S. may have a common enemy in ISIS, but in Iraq, they are fighting two very different wars. How would you distinguish these two different wars and their goals and aims? Well, it's very simple, um, that the U.S. is supporting the Kurds with heavy airstrikes in the north. Uh, you can uh, see the, um, hear the aircraft overhead the whole time. And far out in the western province of Anbar, where the Iraqi army is fighting and their U.S. advisors, but in the central bits, where some of the most intense fighting is happening, that's uh, Iranian-backed militia who are doing the fighting uh, at Tikrit and elsewhere. The figures are slightly have turned out to be slightly different, but it's almost all militia and very few Iraqi soldiers, slightly different from the quote you just gave. Um, and there aren't, there aren't any American airstrikes there. And that's one of the things that you know, is, makes life much easier for uh, the Islamic State, for ISIS, is that you have the Iranians fighting them and you have the Americans fighting them, uh, and you have um, these militia and the others, but they they don't, uh, they're fighting different wars. They're not uh, united. And that's one of the reasons that the Islamic State has you know, flourished, is that it may have many enemies, but these enemies often hate each other as much, if not more, as they hate ISIS. And there isn't much sign of this changing, despite all these big international conferences uh, that are meant to be uh, combating ISIS. And I think that's something that people don't really understand here in the U.S., so I want to go through this just a little bit more. So what is the war that Turkey is fighting in this region, then? Well, that's a very sort of Turkish war. You know, uh, Turkey wanted to get rid of Assad in Syria uh, from 2011, although they had been his big ally. They uh, sort of opened up their border and they let anybody across. They now say that they only let sort of moderate fellows across. But in fact, this was very important for the jihadis, the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda-type organizations, that they could just fly to Ankara or Istanbul airport and go down to the border and cross over. And to a very substantial degree, they still can. You know, they might, it's about $25 you have to pay to so-called smuggler, basically, you just... Uh, go to um, a border guard, and uh, he's paid off, and um, uh, the uh, you cross over into uh, territory held by the Islamic State. And it's one of the sort of uh, uh, 
amazing things about this war, despite all this rhetoric that comes out of Washington, London, and Paris, and everywhere else about fighting uh, ISIS, that that border remains open. You know, these uh, jihadis who uh, go and fight for the Islamic State, they don't speak Turkish, they don't speak Arabic, but they just uh, cross over this border uh, without any impediment, and nobody in the outside world doing much about it. And so finally, what is the war then that uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Gulf states, what is, the Gulf state monarchies, what is the war that they are fighting in the Syria-Iraq region? It's a Sunni v. Shia war, and it's a, the Gulf monarchies v. Iran. That's kind of a conflict that's been going on since the overthrow of the Shah in 1979. And they're Sunni, and in the case of Saudi Arabia and uh, some of the others, they're variant of Islam, Wahhabism is very close to what uh, uh, Islamic State believes, you know, that um, treating women as uh, uh, chattels, second or third class citizens, if that, uh, flogging people, cutting off heads. Um, the only other place, part of the world where that happens in exactly the same way as Islamic State is uh, down in Saudi Arabia. This is just amazing to me that we have a Saudi war, we have a Turkish war, we have an Iraqi war, we have an Iranian war, we have a U.S. war, we have a West war, we have a Kurdish war, all taking place at the same time in the same area with different goals. So it's no wonder that we don't have the simple uh, front page that we would have, say, in 1944 here in the United States, where it has the map with the perfectly drawn line of showing where the front is. It's no wonder that we don't have that because there's so much complexity and so much com- uh, it's, it's so much complexity when it comes to the war. War that's being fought there. What should that com- uh, complexity tell us, in your opinion, about any overall idea of what is happening in what we could call the Middle East? What should this whirlwind of violence and allegiances that overlap like some sort of horrible Venn diagram, what should that uh, tell us, in your opinion, about what is taking place today in the region? Well, I think there are many things, but one is there's a lack of seriousness in Washington, Western Europe, I think, of really combating Islamic State, um, you know, you really want to do that. You want to use, you know, the U.S. has air power, which it is using to assist the Syrian Kurds. For a time, it used to consider them as terrorists. Now they're allies. And that's quite effective against uh, Islamic State. Uh, when it comes to the Syrian army and Assad, you know, one option would be to use air power in combination with them against Islamic State. But uh, Assad is our enemy, so we can't do that. The same is true of the Shia militias. Now, this isn't underwriting these people, you know, whether it's Shia militias or Assad. You know, these are are pretty unpleasant people. But if you decide not to aid them, then that's a big plus for Islamic State. So, you know, you compare it to 1944, at the end of the day, these very different people, whether it's uh, um, Stalin's Soviet Union or Roosevelt's U.S. or the British Empire uh, had one object, which was to defeat Hitler and, uh, and Nazi Germany, and they did it. You know, if they'd all been fighting their different wars, this wouldn't have happened. So that's one of the big differences between then and now. It used to be said uh, with confidence that peace in the Middle East goes through Palestine, goes through the occupied territories. That is, whatever the issue at its core, it is still the occupied territories. Do you think that's still the case? Is the occupation still the linchpin in Middle East peace, security, and stability, or have post-9-11 events changed that? Does Middle East peace... I think peace... It's, uh, you know, it's, it's changed uh, somewhat, but there are other issues as well, but it never goes away. You know, some people sort of say, oh, well... 
you know, that sort of yesterday's crises, now there are different crises, Sunni v. Shia, we've got the Islamic State um, spreading its influence, but actually it always goes on, you know, it kind of poisons the water in the whole area, uh, in a sense, I mean, speaking metaphorically. Uh, and, but, you know, you can sense the violence spreading in the whole area. If you go from uh, the border of uh, Pakistan right over to northwest Nigeria, there are seven wars going on in uh, different states. And in all of these, al-Qaeda-type organizations are either strong or are having an influence. So uh, I think the idea, you know, that this war could be confined somehow to Syria or Syria and Iraq uh, just isn't working. And whatever the U.S. now think they're doing to limit the Islamic State, it's not. Uh, that's not working either. And, Ken, because we were just speaking with uh, former CIA and State Department analyst Melvin Goodman, who turned into a whistleblower back in 1991, and he was arguing that uh, it's possible, because I was, I was asking him, can you vote the... Uh, the intelligence policy here in the United States, can you vote that intelligence policy the way that the CIA deals with intelligence? Can you vote that out of power? And he said, maybe not. But if you go back to 2000 in the presidential election, it's possible that if Al Gore won, we wouldn't have the situation we have here in the Middle East because he pointed it all back to the Iraq war and the military reaction to 9-11 by the Bush administration. Do you think that these seven wars, as you just pointed out, this kind of chaos that's happening of all sorts of different wars taking place in one region, do you think that we can trace all this back to the invasion of Iraq? Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, nine eleven. You know, it's where this was a great atrocity, but it was also a trap. You know, I think a conscious trap on the part of Bin Laden, in order to lure the U.S. into wars in the Middle East. Uh, you know, to destroy the status quo, and Bush and company fell into that trap. They jumped into that trap, and they destroyed the status quo, and the beneficiaries were al-Qaeda-type organizations, um, whether it's Islamic State or, uh, you know, many clones around the place. And they stretch over a very big area now, and they're not, you know, they're getting stronger. We are speaking to Middle East correspondent for The Independent, the U.K. News, newspaper, The Independent, Patrick Coburn. He is the author of the new book, The Rise of Islamic State, ISIS, and the New Sunni Revolution. Patrick won the Martha Gellhorn Prize in 2005, the James Cameron Prize in 2006, and the Orwell Prize for journalism in 2009. And we repeat those things on the show every time just to show you how great of a journalist Patrick is. So, uh, Patrick, one of the things that really uh, concerns me at times is exaggerated fear. And I understand how horrible the Islamic State, how horrible ISIS is and the atrocities that they have occurred, uh, that they have committed. But how exaggerated is the ISIS image when it comes to their ability to challenge the power of nation states and to attract Muslims to live in a caliphate? Well, I think it is, you know, they are attracting people. They, you know, they're still in business as a state. It hasn't got much smaller since uh, they established it uh, last uh, 29th of June. Um, but I think that also, you know, a lot of these atrocities they commit are really PR stunts to show their strength and to dominate the news agenda. And they've been able to do that. And often, you know, it's, you're right, there is a systematic exaggeration. You know, when you had the Charlie Hebdo, 
attack in Paris where these poor cartoonists and some police and uh, some uh, uh, people um, buying food in a uh, kosher food shop were murdered by three guys. Uh, and then, you know, the whole of France is convulsed. You have 40 leaders taking place in a march and so forth. These guys, you know, if they, if they were dead, but, you know, they would have been real pleased that they'd managed to provoke such a gigantic reaction. Uh, you know, so it's, in a way, you know, these very public events, public atrocities, are aimed at uh, dominating the news agenda, and they do that. And I, so I think that um, the actual impact of these people is often exaggerated, but that is to their advantage. You know, in Britain here, tremendous excitement. Those three schoolgirls went off to Syria to uh, disappeared from their homes. You know, and this is covered in fantastic detail, how they led, what happened in their homes, how they finally crossed from Turkey into Syria. But there are about 2.8 million uh, Muslims in Britain. You know, these are tiny numbers we're talking about. And the impact of um, the number of people actually getting involved in this, going to Syria, you know, is absolutely minuscule. Right. That's the other point I wanted to make. And I'm glad that you brought up the story of the three uh, British girls who were going to join the Islamic State, because that is a, a perfect example of the way that the media is framing this and the exaggeration when it, they focus on a singular story like that. But you also point out how, you know, while we might be at times uh, playing into the ISIS media theme that they want us to, you know, participate in. Uh, there's also this other thing that's going on with the Kurds, which is the Kurdish regional government. Uh, a lot of Kurds believe that they underestimated the Islamic uh, State. Why do why did the uh, Kurdish regional government uh, underestimate the Islamic State when the Islamic State has been such a threat to Kurds in the region? I think they thought this is a kind of Sunni-Shia thing and we'll stay on the sidelines rather opportunistically. They took over a lot of territory that was disputed between Kurds and Arabs. Uh, they exaggerated their own st strength. They believed their own propaganda about uh, the Peshmerga being terrific fighters, but they hadn't fought anybody for a long time. So I think they were completely aghast when their, uh, uh, their fighters ran away. Um, you know, they'd been living up there in the north. They'd discovered oil. They thought they were going to be a new oil state. Uh, you know, they, they'd sort of rather forgotten that they lived on the, on the edge of one of the most violent places on Earth. So I think they made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, people say that area, Kurdistan, is so different, but it kind of works in the same way, you know, that a large, most of the population works for the government, you know, the, the revenue comes from oil, most of it comes from Baghdad. Um the I mean, the places like that tend to be sort of pretty vulnerable. Everybody's got a job because they're somebody's cousin, including the army. Uh, so nothing works too well. That's true of Baghdad. It's true of the Kurds. It's true, true of much of the Middle East. True of much of the world, maybe. Uh, and not only are there all these different wars that we're talking about taking place, all these different wars with different goals, with different agendas, with different aims, but then there's uh, fighting within the different groups. For instance, with the Kurds, you have the Kurdish regional government, and then you also have this Democratic Union Party. We had on our show Dilar Derek, a Ph.D. student at the University of Cambridge, where her research focus is Kurdistan, the Kurdish women's movement, and the PYD, that's the Democratic Union Party, which has existed in the Rojava territories since 2004. Um, how... 
so how many uh, battles are actually taking place within the sides themselves? I mean, is it just the Kurds that are having some sort of divisions within their faction where you have uh, the Kurdish regional government and you have this PYD, the Democratic Union Party, or are other sides actually facing uh, in- internal problems as well? Well, yeah, there are divisions there. I mean, what's interesting about the, the PYD, which is the Syrian Kurds, basically, belong to this party, which is very much pretty well so comes out of an old, something fairly similar to a communist party. Uh, but they have an army, you know, which fights uh, ISIS pretty effectively and now is sort of in, uh, in de facto terms is, uh, um, you know, uh, collaborating with the airstrikes, advancing with U.S. airstrikes. The problem for the U.S., and many problems, but one is to have actually effective people on the ground. And it's all very well going around saying, yeah, the Iraqi government's the new government, they're great guys. But in fact, it's the old kind of very corrupt, incompetent machine. So um, the U.S. is in this peculiar position of being allied to people who, a few months ago, they were... uh, uh, declaring to be terrorists. And um, so, you know, that's fairly typical of the, the region. I mean, I think what's striking, you know, about this is so many uh, uh, organizations, the incredible sums of money that were spent on the Iraqi army by Iraq and the U.S., all this training, and all for nothing. But nobody seems to be quite asking the question in the U.S. or elsewhere, you know, what about all this training? Why did these guys all run away? What, what was all this money spent on? Now the U.S. is training them again, but how does this training differ this time round from the training we had last time round, uh, when you know, which produced one of the most corrupt and incompetent uh, armies in history? You know, some of these questions I don't think are being asked. Uh, so who is arming the Islamic State right now? Because when we were talking to Dilar Derek, she was saying that in some of the fighting, some of the reports that she had, the um, uh, Islamic State was using German weapons that she believed had come across the Turkish border. And we hear the story here in the United States that the Islamic State, you know, because we apply it to past wars, uh, the Islamic State must just be using weapons that we left behind or weapons that the United States were trying to sell to moderate Syrians before realizing that there are no moderate Syrians. Yeah, I mean, they were letting the Gatteries and the uh, Saudis pay, you know, pay for and send a lot of weapons and ammunition that were supposedly going to moderate Syrian we- uh, rebels. But, you know, you can see on the uh, social media, there are pictures, you know, they have a lot of them ended up in the hands of jihadis. Uh, maybe they were n- never anybody else's hands. Uh, then you have this great quantity of weapons taken from the Iraqi army. Um, and also you can just sort of buy weapons in the area. When you have corrupt armies, you know, I was talking earlier about the corruption of the officer corps. One thing is, you know, you order a lot of weapons and you don't give them to your guys. You simply sell them. There's plenty of arms markets around. So, um, you know, it is quite interesting. The, I mean, I've been doing a, a sort of series on uh, inside the Islamic State. Um, and this is um, uh, um, they're raising troops that conscripting people within their area. There are about six million people in the area ruled by the Islamic State. Um, 
and they're conscripting all the young men. It's very difficult to avoid conscription. Actually, the Islamic State's much more effective in sort of imposing its authority than uh, the um, uh, the Baghdad government or the Syrian government, for that matter. Can the Islamic State be defeated without Western military intervention of some sort? I don't think that... Um, I think it's, uh, you know, people talk, sort of talk about sort of boots on the ground in this sort of, I think, rather ridiculous way. You know, look what happened last time with 150,000 U.S. troops in uh, the uh, area, and it didn't work. There's no reason it shouldn't work again. Uh, so um, I think that you, there are other effective things you can do by deciding, you know, are you going to use air power to support the Syrian army? You know, they say, oh, but we shouldn't uh, do that because these are terrible people and we've been against them for so long. But that's the biggest armed force in Syria. So you're going to do something to the Islamic State. You've got to cooperate with the biggest military force in Syria. If you don't, the Islamic State gets off the hook. Similarly with the, the Shia militias in Iraq. Again, it's not a character reference for these people, but... One serious about fighting the Islamic State, you have to do this sort of thing. How sustainable can the extremism of the Islamic State be? How long can you last as everyone's enemy? Well, I think a fairly long time. You know, the uh, conditions are pretty bad in their area. You know, a lot of areas lack of electricity, that uh, food prices are high, that, you know, they get fuel from oil wells they control, but it's kind of backyard refinery, so it's pretty bad fuel, so that ruins all the engines and the cars and machinery if you use it for more than a certain period. Uh, you know, they're unpopular because they insist that all women wear the niqab, i.e. cover the whole face, uh, and if a woman doesn't, then they ask to take her back to her home and ask for the husband. When he comes out, they take him and they give him 40 lashes. Uh, you know, th this is not the custom in these areas, even if you know, they're Islamic, but they haven't done that before. So that's creating a great deal of anger. Uh, fighters coming and wanting to marry local girls. Uh, again, people are frightened by that and are pretty angry about that. On the other hand, when they think, what's the alternative? Well, it's the Shia taking over or uh, it's somebody else. Then they may be even more frightened than that. I mean, if you want somebody living inside the Islamic State, the options open to you are not great. You may not like your present rulers but you're even fright more frightened of the alternatives. Could or can you see a political Islamic state that had some of the same evolutionary traits, if you will, of Hamas or Sinn Féin? Um, I don't think so. I think that this is more, it's more like a sort of Islamic Camarouge. You know, they kind of relate to everything and everybody through violence. Uh, and if things don't work, they get more violent. You know, they were fair. when they came into some places, I've been talking to some people from there, when they came into places, this city west of uh, Baghdad, Fallujah, early last year, they captured that. Uh, that's six months before they captured Mosul. And initially, they're pretty moderate and people pretty pleased. They didn't like the Iraqi army at all. Uh, it was taking their sons, torturing them into confessions, executing people. Um, but after six months, people say, when they captured Mosul, this kind of went to their head. They felt that they had divine authority to do whatever they wanted, and they became much more extreme, you know, 
Uh, everybody had to go to the mosque at a certain time. The shops had to close. If the shopkeepers didn't, they got beaten. Uh, every other aspect of their uh, rule became tougher. You know, in the schools, they've purged all the uh, the courses. You know, so um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, the um, courses are no longer taught. Um, the uh, obviously uh, things like devolution are out. Uh, but overall, you know, they've really tightened their ideological, military, and political grip on those areas since the fall of Mosul last year. On the February 3rd broadcast of CBS Evening News, anchor Scott Pelley, who is currently being branded as the most trustworthy or journalistic anchor in the U.S., he started a broadcast with a story on the Islamic State and turned to his correspondent in the field and asked, Assuming they're not simply psychopaths, what is it that ISIS wants? What do you think has had more of an impact on the existence and continued existence of the Islamic State, Western and outside influences, or the fact that they are embracing sheer lunacy? Well, you know, it's partly many, many reasons. One is you know, the, the kind of way the world works in the Middle East. Uh, the last 20, 30 years, uh, you have regimes that even when they were dictatorships, they used to guarantee a job and um, uh, a little bit of money for people and uh, food uh, rationing. Then, you know, sort of in the 90s, neoliberal economics, they didn't do that anymore. So if you're a sort of young guy in eastern Syria, northern Iraq, uh, you're a Sunni, you know, you don't have any chance of a job, uh, things are pretty hopeless. So there's a great sort of mass of discontent looking for a channel there, looking for an effective channel. And ISIS offers that. One last question for you, Patrick. We have been speaking with Patrick Coburn. He is the Middle East correspondent for The Independent, a newspaper in the U.K., and he is author of The Rise of the Islamic State, ISIS and the New Sunni Revolution. He was awarded, Patrick was awarded Foreign Commentator of the Year at the 2013 Editorial uh, Intelligence Comment Awards. He has written three books on Iraq's recent history, including The Occupation, War and Resistance in Iraq, which was a finalist for the National Book uh, Critics Circle Awards. One last question for you, Patrick, and it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. I just think that this answer is very difficult, no matter how you answer it. What can be done in order to bring about stability, security, safety, and the end of violence in the region that we've been discussing today when it comes to Iraq, when it comes to Syria? What can be done, if anything, to bring about or at least a step toward peace? Well, a whole number of things, because it's getting so much worse rather than better. You know, they, the violence is sort of spreading like a sort of volcanic eruption across the region, not just the Middle East, but into North Africa and into South Asia. And, you know, we've particularly seen that in the last year. Um, as I was saying earlier, you really want to combat Islamic State. You have to team up with its opponents uh, who share a front line with the Islamic State. You may not like them, like Assad, uh, but uh, you have to do that. Now, you can decide not to. You can decide, we really hate Assad. We're not going to use our air power in combination with him. But you have to accept that's a big plus for Islamic State because um, the 
Syrian army is getting weaker and they're getting stronger in Syria. Uh, in Iraq, you know, if you have bad relations with Iran, then you can't really support the main military force fighting Islamic State. Now, these aren't easy questions to resolve, and I see exactly why people have reservations about this. But if you want to destroy Islamic State, this is what you have to do, and they're not doing it. You know, there are other questions, obviously, Israel, Palestine, that never goes away, that always that destabilizes things. But at the moment, we're talking about uh, the, the, the sort of the main eruption in the Middle East. Do you think Islamic State, which is destabilizing everything, and if they don't combine and unite to really do something about it, then this is going to get worse. You can see how, you know, look at Libya. Um, you know, three years ago there were no, uh, four years ago there were no jihadis there. Now uh, the Islamic State has got a foothold. Um, the whole. Uh, uh, Islamic organizations are becoming more powerful. Um, this is happening throughout North Africa, the Middle East. Uh, they're beginning to penetrate um, Afghanistan as well. So, but I don't at the moment. That just isn't happening in that way. What impact, if any, do you think an Iranian nuclear deal would have on what is taking place when it comes to the Islamic State? Well, I think you know it would have a positive. Uh, in that then uh, you would be have relations with the other power which is capable of fighting Islamic State or supporting those who fight the uh, fight Islamic State. That could put a lot more pressure on them. Um, if you're saying, oh, Iran is the great threat, you know, there are plenty of people, mostly in the U.S., and, but also in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, saying, no, no, Oh, yeah, Islamic State, real bad, but, uh, you know, the, the great threat is Iran, you know. That, again, is a plus for Islamic State. Um, and so you need to get all these people basically facing in the same direction, um, including Iran. And obviously an agreement on, uh, you know, the Iranian nuclear program and... Um, closer relations, links with Iran, and of sanctions and so forth, is pretty essential to this. Um, otherwise, you know, Islamic State might suffer defeat there or push back there somewhere else. But it's still in business, you know. It's dominating the news agenda every day, every week. Um, and it's losing a few positions on the sort of edge of its territory. But that isn't enough to really weaken it and uh, certainly not destroy it. Patrick, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being on today live from Canterbury. Good evening in Canterbury. Uh, Patrick Coburn is the author of The Rise of Islamic State, ISIS, and the New Sunni Revolution. And you can read his regular writing over at The Independent. That's independent.co.uk. Patrick Coburn, always a pleasure to have you on your show. And now I'm going to... Uh, have your brother on in just a little bit. Do you have a question from hell that I should ask him, a personal question from hell maybe that I can throw I'm at you? I'm sure he can answer all of those. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Patrick. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Great. Take care. Thanks. Bye. All right. There you have it. 
That was Chuck speaking with legendary journalist Patrick Coburn about ISIS in 2015. A good compliment to our earlier interview where Chuck spoke to Robert Fisk in 2005. This voice is Dan Hills speaking to you in 2022. And that about wraps things up. I'm glad you are able to join me this morning. Chuck's on vacation. He's fine. He's the picture of health. He's simply recreating. So we're playing some classic interviews this week and next. If you appreciate the work that Chuck's been doing for the past 26 years, I think it'd be a great idea to head on over to Patreon. Type in This Is Hell. Get signed up. Four bucks a month. Month gets you access to a special Patreon-only show, which air that airs weekly. So for a measly four bucks, you get four all-new monologues from Chuck, as well as hand-picked interviewed from This Is Hell's storied 26 year past. Before I was ever a board operator, I subscribed to this Patreon, and let me tell you, I never regretted it for even a, a fraction of a second. Chuck's monologues on the Patreon always offer a fascinating glimpse into how the show is made and the lessons Chuck has drawn from recent guests, and the $4 a month which secures access to these is a paltry sum, especially in light of the fact that I recently paid $10 for a hot dog and a Sprite. On that inflationary note, I'll bid you a fond adieu. I'll be in here tomorrow doing this all over again. Until then. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>